This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements, helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by Allstate, American General, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello and welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us today. Well, while personal injury cases often end in settlement, at times there is simply no path to resolution. And today on Ringler Radio, we have with us a retired judge who will offer us some helpful insights into how successfully you can settle your personal injury case through mediation. And joining us for that from San Francisco is the Honorable Lynn Duree, who served on the Marin County Superior Court for more than 20 years before retiring and joining JAMS, the largest private provider of mediation and arbitration services worldwide. Lynn has presided over and settled thousands of personal injury cases and many commercial, contract, and other negligence matters. She's also a regular Law.com contributor. So with all that, Lynn... Welcome to the show, Judge. Hi, Larry. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. We're so happy to have you with us. And also joining us today is my friend and Ringler colleague, Manny Valdez, from our San Diego, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas offices. Manny's been with Ringler since 2002. Uh, proud to say he's an honorable U.S. Army veteran and uh, is also fluent in Spanish, which never hurts. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. Well, Judge... Why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to your current role at JAMS? Well, I love being a trial judge, and of course, we believe in the right of trial by jury. But one of the things that I noticed over the years was that uh, people were happier settling cases than they were trying cases. The experience of trying cases was not the transcendent, wonderful experience that is depicted in the movies. It's a little bit more like going to war. And even the party who won often felt worn down by the process. By contrast, I did a lot of settlement conferences, and it was an amazing thing. People who came in on opposite sides of the courtroom and angry left at the end of the day with the settlement, and they were shaking hands and patting each other on the shoulders and glad to have buried the hatchet. So I really became interested in dispute resolution by agreement as opposed to by trial. So when I retired after 21 years on the bench, I was very very happy to be able to go to jams where I could mediate full time. Terrific. Yeah, you know, I uh, I've been involved in uh, in structured settlements for 34 years, and and uh, the process uh, in regards to uh, going into a courtroom for trial lawyers, both defense lawyers and and personal injury uh, attorneys, is uh, just like the judge was mentioning. It's a very difficult process. It's a very trying process, and from a client and um, uh, observer from a consultant standpoint on both the uh, plaintiff and defense side, you know, it becomes very, very stressful um, to the point where it really takes its toll. Toll on, and I'm going to speak specifically from the uh, party standpoint, it, it is very stressful for them to the point where um, they can seriously even become ill. 
they can uh, have other factors involved in their uh, personal life that's created tremendous injury for them, both physically and mentally. And it becomes such a process for them that uh, it's, it's too lengthy. It's too lengthy, too trying, too traumatic. And unfortunately, the, fortunately for us, the best way to help get some of that res- resolved is through uh, mediation. Well, Judge, what, what are some of the reasons why some cases, some, especially some injury cases, are, uh, are tough to settle? What, what, what's, what, what happens there? Well, I always say that um, reasonable people can settle their cases. And so if both parties come to the process where they're willing to be reasonable and willing to be flexible, we're going to settle the case. So the corollary to that is if someone's not being reasonable, the case is difficult to settle. On the plaintiff side, one of the hang-ups that happens from time to time is um, maybe the plaintiff's party you know, has read something on the internet that causes him to disbelieve his lawyer's advice about the value of the case and to believe something he's read on the internet or something his barber has told him that's, you know, not really based on experience, but is based on, um, you know, some kind of um, unreliable source. And from the defendant's standpoint, um, the thing about um, personal injury cases is on the defendant's side, there's almost always insurance. So insurance companies have a ton of data on what cases are worth. And, you know, they have national data banks informing them. And um, that may or may not comport with what is going on in this individual case. So the main problem sometimes from the defense side is the insurance company hasn't given a fair evaluation or they're not ready. Um, insurance companies are good at settling cases, but it is a big machine. It takes them a long time to prepare, and if they haven't gotten the information far enough in advance, that can sometimes be an obstacle on reaching a settlement. Interesting. Hey, Manny, from your perspective, how, how do personal injury cases differ from uh, other kinds of civil cases uh, when it comes to settlement, especially at mediation? What, what have you found? Yeah, you know, I, I concur with the judge's comments, and, and the issue even is one step further or two steps further from the plaintiff's side. You know, there's such a competition out there to hold on to your client. Uh, you are giving them information that they want to uh, hear, and sometimes unwarranted. Um, they have to be more realistic in, in what the value of the real case is worth. That's one thing. From the defense side, um, I think the defendant comes in, as the judge had mentioned, kind of unprepared many times. Um, they'll come in with a, you know, a, a cap of what they, they believe the value of that case is worth, and, and no one's ever taken depositions. They haven't gone to the experts. They haven't done detailed background before it even gets to the mediation process. Therefore, you know, hey, you have this, uh, you know, deadlock of, uh, you know, high expectations and, and no money. And so when you have that spread, it, it just becomes overwhelmingly difficult to grind it out, to grind it out. And so sometimes you got to go into second or third mediation, and that's that's a that's just a longer process, I think. No, no question about that. Uh, you, you know, Lynn, in your article for Law dot com uh, titled "Make the Most of Your Mediation: A Personal Injury Case," you offered some tips on how to settle in mediation. Tell us about the importance of that advice that you you try to uh, give to to folks out there who wanted to learn more about it. So 
I think the first thing that I talked about in the article um, was from the point of view of the lawyer, and that was to prepare the, especially for the plaintiff's lawyer, to prepare the brief a long time in advance. And there there are a lot of reasons for this, but number one is the number one way of conveying information that lawyers have to judges or to mediators is in writing. And you want to hit the ground running during your mediation. You don't want to be spending the first valuable hour of being together by getting background information. So it's really useful if the plaintiff can write an excellent brief far in advance. That helps the lawyer think through the case from beginning to end. It helps the client see that their lawyer is prepared. And further to the point I made earlier about helping the insurance company, it helps the insurance uh, decision makers evaluate the case in advance. So that's the first thing well, I always how, say. How, how, how far in advance? I mean, obviously, everyone's under a lot of work constraints and, and, and competing things they're doing. How far in advance do you find uh, is appropriate uh, for you to really get your hands around it as well? Is it Could it be a week, a day, a month? What are you looking for? Well, from the lawyer standpoint, I mean, they faint when I say this, but I say get your brief into the to the other side a, a month in advance. That is really how much time the decision makers at the insurance company need to send the uh, brief up the chain of command. You know, from the judge's standpoint, I often get briefs the night before. That's okay. You're paying me to read them. I will read them the night before. It's not optimal, but I'm used to it. But if you're an insurance company, sending a brief the night before is just going to do you no good because they're going to come to the mediation unprepared. Sure. Well, what's your advice, uh, Judge, about plaintiffs uh, and their the whole issue of, of what their demand is? How, how high should their demands be? What have you What have you seen in that in that regard? And Manny, I'm going to ask you that same question. But go ahead, Lynn. Well, you know, I am not a plaintiff's lawyer. So plaintiff's lawyers have a lot of lore on the subject on, you know, what the demand should be. And there are certainly a lot of lawyers who would tell you that the best thing to do is to make the demand as astronomical as possible because it doesn't cost anything to demand more. But I am an advocate of making a demand that's reasonable, not a demand that you expect the other side will pay, not a demand that doesn't leave you plenty of room to move, but a demand that's reasonable. Reasonable. So I say the best uh, demand is the amount of money a plaintiff could get soaking wet if they won on every single thing at trial. That is the, that is the best demand. The problem with making a huge demand, you know, I won a skajillion dollars for the case, is that the other side won't take it seriously. It's easy for them to not engage in settlement if your demand is out of the ballpark. Another risk to doing that is sometimes the party kind of falls in love with that number and they start thinking, oh, yeah, I could use this gajillion dollars, you know, and they start spending the money. And then the other thing is one statement that I'm sure all of you have heard lawyers make many times in mediation is I'm not going to bid against myself. And if you make a demand that's just, you know, sky high, you're going to end up bidding against yourself. So I say make a reasonable demand. Well, Manny, as as someone who is involved in these mediations all the time, uh, and and as you know, we see these demands and offers come all the time. What's your perspective on that? Because you know there is a certain protocol uh, in the in the so called game that if you come in too low, it, it could hurt you as a plaintiff uh, just as much as if you come in too high. So, what, what what's your perspective? Well, you have to take a look at the case. I think, uh, Larry, I think that each case, uh, you know, as an example, I I can recall on many occasions when. 
meters would ask me um, things such as, what is the value of this person, not based on the life care plan, but what, if, what is the value of this individual or a child? How much is a child worth? And my question and my response to that is, you tell me, what is the value and the worth of a child over, you know, someone's livelihood or, or a parent and so forth? The value of the case, the value of uh, the opening offer, the opening demand, and the counter is so critical, I think, uh, to how the case is going to proceed. It's so high that, you know, they shouldn't even come together, then uh, that mediation is going to be difficult to even come close to a settlement process. And if, and the offer so low uh, that gets everybody all bent out of shape, then now we're getting uh, people uh, sideways right out the gate. So, uh, you know, it depends on the case itself to determine the value. If the value is there, I see no issue with coming in with some serious uh, request. Uh, but if it's not, then we've got to be reasonable. Well, Manny, how, how do you think a good attorney should prepare their client for mediation? Because as Lynn said, sometimes they can overpromise a number or at least get that get their that plane of thinking much bigger than the case ever will be. Don't they have, there's a lot of preparation that has to go into uh, preparing the plaintiff themselves, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, uh, as many as um uh, cases that I have on not only in California but also in Nevada, Larry, what I find out is that certain personal injury attorneys are better prepared than others. And they are preparing and that includes a brief. That includes setting the tone with their clients, that includes uh, getting in a position for the defendant to respond accordingly. The better prepared that that plaintiff counsel is in a case of significant value, the better response the defendant will will respond. Uh, and and if you don't prepare this plaintiff to say this is going to be a reasonable way to accept it. What I'd like to do working with the plaintiffs is I'd like to prepare what it's going to take for them to get to the next level of life, what it's going to take to, to get them moving forward in, in over this incident. So you prepare that by numbers. You prepare that by if I started at 15 million and I can prepare it and I can move forward at seven or eight million, then my real demand shouldn't be that 15 million. I should get a little bit more reasonable. So I, I try to work with the, with, the, with, the, with the plaintiff way beyond before that they get into that room because uh, that expectation can, can get out of hand real quick. Well, absolutely. And uh, Lynn, so let's talk about the role of the mediator. What are some of the various methods of involvement which have proven most effective uh, as you've seen it as you've done your job? Larry, the funny thing is, is that the longer that I have been in this um, business, the more that I've found out that the thing that works the best is letting the parties feel like they've had their day in court. People really want to be heard and understood, especially plaintiffs. You know, they have suffered some trauma that led to this lawsuit. And the process of litigation has been bruising and painful, where they are often victimized again and made to feel bad for filing a claim and made to feel defensive because of what they've asked for and so forth. Um, people want to be heard and understood. They're, they, they know that life isn't fair. They 
know uh, at some point that no amount of money can really compensate them for what they've suffered. But if they feel like they've had their day in court, that someone's been a good listener, that someone feels bad about what happened to them and um, can show them that here's a settlement, it's every dollar that's on the table, here's um, how much more it's going to cost to go forward, people can then say, I'm ready to relegate this experience to my past. You know, Lynn, there's a, I think, a difference of opinion lately about whether the so-called opening uh, session, where the plaintiff presents their point of view and the defense then counters it in front of the the clients, et cetera, some some mediators feel that that's counterproductive. It 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 just leads to some acrimony before the day gets started. Others like it because it kind of outlines, gives everybody the opportunity, as you say, to have kind of a day in court. What what's your feeling about where that's headed and, and, and maybe some opinions of some of the other mediators you've spoken to? Well, I agree with you, Larry. I mean, you know, when mediation was new decades ago, people wanted to explain to everyone uh, what the mediation process was and so forth. And these days, I find that my time is better spent just getting to know the parties, finding out what was what's important to them, what ideas the lawyers and the parties have for how we can make the most of our day. It sometimes happens during during the day that um, I will bring the parties together because it's sometimes great to have a face-to-face. It's very common for me to pull the lawyers out and just talk to the lawyers. Sometimes I take, just with the lawyer's permission, I just take the parties out and meet with the parties separately. But I agree, the joint session seems to be a thing of the past. And and Manny, from a broker's perspective, if you're representing the defense, uh, one thing you do want to do is be able to kind of see and touch the the plaintiff to be able to get a, a, a little feel for that that relationship and, and, and what's going on and what's going to go on in the rest of the day. How do you do that if there's no opening session? Do you, do you still try to somehow make contact with the plaintiff attorney and the plaintiff? I, I think that's important to uh, at least uh, view and communicate with them, let them know why what, what your role is here. Uh, you know, they uh, should look at you as an assistant in the process and a part of the overall solution, not defendant versus plaintiff. If you look at yourself and you're presented as you uh, as a person that can bring a resolution, help to bring resolution to the uh, table, I think that's helpful. I think it's more helpful that you get to know them. With, how can you bring a solution to someone if you don't get a chance to really know them? And so I, I kind of insist, to be honest with you, I, I kind of insist because I want to hear from them. I want to hear what they have to tell me. And I give them a little bit of background of who I am and what I've done and how many cases I've been involved in. I mean, it's been probably at least 7,000. So I get, I get a chance to, uh, to feel through that process. And I think that's really important. No question. And, and Lynn, I will say that uh, oftentimes, as Manny just, just expressed, it's oftentimes the best of both worlds and all worlds if the mediator can somehow express to the other side that there's a structured settlement broker here to help to help bridge the gap and get people together. And uh, sometimes that they're, they're looked upon less as, a, as an adversary than, than as a, uh, someone in the, in the middle seat trying to help everybody. Well, I totally agree with that. And I think it is, I mean, 
a lot of times defendants are not willing to do that. But I want to say that what Manny has expressed is an extremely powerful tool. When you have people from the defense side who are interested and willing to meet with the plaintiff and willing to see what she has to say and to hear how she suffered and to express some empathy and to express concern with reaching a good outcome, that can be really powerful. No question about it. Well, let's take a quick break right now and be back in just a minute right here on Ringo Radio with more on this fascinating topic. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, the leader in the structured settlements profession nationwide. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler Associates works with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. There's a Ringler Associate in all the major cities of the U.S. No one has more experience than a Ringler Associate. Check out our new website at www.ringlerassociates.com for the best information for claimants, legal professionals, and claims personnel, and to find the Ringler Associate nearest you. When it's your interest at stake in a lawsuit settlement, you want only the best financial plan. You can count on Ringler Associates to structure a customized plan that meets the needs of you and your family for the future. Visit RinglerAssociates.com to learn more. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm joined by my special guest, the Honorable Lynn Duree from Jams in San Francisco. And uh, and we're also joined by uh, Ringler Associate Manny Valdez, who uh, operates in San Diego, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. And we're having a very interesting discussion about mediation. Lynn, being in the structured settlement industry as we are, we're often in the room for the mediation and we're usually involved in the settlement process. Talk to us about your experience with structured settlement brokers being there to, to be utilized to help resolve cases where you, as, as you move through the day. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things in mediation is you want to keep the conversation going. You want to maintain momentum because you want to avoid impasse, right? Impasse is when there's no more movement. So having a structure person in the room is very helpful for um, creating options for both parties. So um, plaintiff's lawyers um, often bring a structure person in if they have a client who is a minor. So there are restrictions about when the minor can receive money and um, the structure person can really help explain to the parents uh, how to optimize the settlement uh, so that the child's recovery is protected well into the child's adult life. Another way that I have seen um, plaintiffs bring in structures is if the plaintiff's lawyer has concerns about how their client will be handling the money once the settlement is reached and they want to make sure that money is preserved for the future. Defendants bring in structure people 
to help add value to a settlement. I mean, you know, we talked earlier about how sometimes plaintiffs will have certain numbers in their brain about what the case should settle for. And the structure can add value to the settlement because the party might see, oh, I'm getting, you know, if I were to settle the case now, I get $100,000. But if I invest in the structure, I'm getting $145,000 and I'm guaranteed payments for the rest of my life. So that has appeal in um, circum- certain circumstances where you really need to optimize the settlement or guard the uh, payment of the settlement funds. No question. And Manny, when, when your approach, what, what do you say to uh, mediators and others that uh, sometimes question whether or not you, you, you do add value to, to, a, to a mediation and to a settlement? Uh, what, are, what are some of the points you make? Well, you know, I I uh, I really focus, uh, Larry, uh, and mainly since I'm a majority of time a plaintiff broker, I focus on the plaintiff itself. I I really have an in-depth personal conversation. I want to know about them. I want to know about their parents. I want to know about their background. I want to know where they live, where they work. I want to know what their financial uh, background has been. I want to know everything about them. And that process is not a one-hour process. It's through through the mediational time frame that I get a chance to pick and choose the kind of questions that I need answers to. And the only way I can propose something that's going to be functional and make sure that I have met the needs of that particular client is to be specific with them. I can't be throwing numbers at them meaning with, with no meaning behind them. I have, I have to believe that in order to for someone to accept a settlement amount, they have to respond and say to themselves, well, at least I have a reasonable plan because I have reasonably put some numbers that will focus on the things that I want to accomplish. So... It's a process for me. I, I really take it very personally, uh, each each and every case. Um, and each and every case, I try to even go to a minor's comp a hearing after the fact because I don't want a judge, a sitting judge, who's going to prove the compromise to deny the distribution that the parents and us have figured out. And I want to make sure that the judge understands that. Here's the carrier. Here's their rating. Here's why we chose, this is why we went down this road, and that we had a long, detailed process of how we got to this uh, uh, distribution. When I do that, I mean, I certainly uh, walk away knowing that I've done uh, more than just provide numbers. Uh, You know, I've really had a deep, deep conversation with them. No no question about that. And, And Lynn... Do you also often find at mediation we we you get to resolution everybody's happy we everything gets signed and move and we move on and Manny you can comment as well and then all of a sudden up crops especially in minor cases up crops a guardian ad litem someone who wasn't present uh, didn't go through all that and for some for some reason the guardian ad litem wants to take things in a different direction how, how do you, how have you dealt with that well I approved. Um 
I mean, thousands of minor compromises in my years on the bench. And I just want to agree with uh, Larry, and that is the court really wants to make sure, if, you know, especially when the judge was not involved in the settlement process, the court really wants to make sure that this is the best result that's available for the minor. So anything, there, there were a few um, compromises that I did not approve as a judge, and basically I needed more information, or maybe sometimes it just seemed like it was uh, too low. So Manny's thought about the structure professional coming to court for the minor's compromise is a really smart one because, you, you know, the judge, the judge is sitting in the position of deciding this, you know, making a decision about this child's future and has to be looking out for the child's best interest. So anything you can do to, to tell the judge it's fair, it's the best we can do is a really wise move. Um, I ha- don't have any experience with um, the guardian at Lightham afterwards um, having problems, but I, I have had the experience with sometimes the guardian wanting to get involved in taking a piece of the child's funds, and that that's a problem for the courts. Interesting. Manny, any comment on that? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I try to uh, find out who the guardian item is, especially if it's not a, a parent. If it's someone who is a relative or somebody who's a friend, uh, I want to know who that is, uh, to be honest with you. And I tell uh, the plaintiff counsel, not only do I want to know who they are, I want to have a conversation with them because those are the ones that are going to be approaching the, uh, the bench in regards to the petition. So I want to know where their head's at in comparison to the, where the parents are at. That's important. You you can't have a conflict of interest going into court. It's an embarrassment to the court, and it's an embarrassment to the process. Uh, and so without them getting it together and making sure that we all are one, uh, it, it would be uh, uh, it would be a shame. Uh, because we've gone a long ways just to get this case to, to a settlement mode. So. Interesting. And, and, and Judge, as we, as we close this uh, show off, how do, you, how do you apply your experience as a judge to the mediation process? So my understanding is that sometimes you, you like to quote jury instructions when you're talking to uh, plaintiffs about keeping true to their, uh, to their desires, et cetera. T- tell us a little bit about that. A couple of things. I would say that one of the things about being a mediator is you are well aware that the parties and their lawyers know so much more about the case than you are ever going to know after spending a couple of hours reading a brief and maybe a day talking to them. They're always going to know more about the case. What you know as a judge is about um, jury outcomes, how jurors in your area, you know, have decided cases in the past, and you know a lot about risk. You've seen a lot of cases that you thought would go one way that have gone another way. And, um, and the use of jury instructions is great from time to time because that's what it comes down to. People might think, oh, you know, it's not fair that I have to prove this. And you can just take out the book and say, here's what you're going to have to prove. And the instruction that you talked about, you know, each of you must decide the case for your, uh, each of you must decide the case for yourself, but should do so only after talking with other jurors. Sometimes, 
defense lawyers get caught up in, you know, there are so many um, people that are part of the process. They make a decision about a plaintiff's case that it's not good based on everyone agreeing with each other. And so I like to say, you know, the jurors, jurors aren't going to have had your, um, your thought process. They're going to have their human experience. Let's think about what it's going to be like. What would it be like for you if you weren't talking to other people who agreed with you? How might you evaluate the case? Interesting. Yeah, and I think that's a good uh, cautionary tale for all of us. And uh, with that, Lynn, do you have any uh, specific example of a, of, a, of a mediation that you might want to tell us that illustrates all the things we've been discussing today? Is there one that stands out? I had a case a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago that was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the thing about mediation, the thing about court is there are a lot of rules. The thing about mediation, the only rule is confidentiality. So that encourages people to speak frankly. I had an employment case, and um, uh, the plaintiff was fired while she was on pregnancy leave. So she was claiming that there was a violation of you know the Pregnancy Leave Act. And um, so the parties were very angry at each other. And at one point during the day, I said to her, your boss feels really bad about what happened to you. And um, he wants to apologize. And that made a big impression on her. And so I asked the lawyers if I could take the clients into a room separately to have the two of them talk with me there. And the lawyers both agreed. And the employer had been a psychiatrist. So he was very astute, um, uh, with talking about feelings, and he was a really good listener. And so anyway, they, the employer and the employee had a really nice talk, and at the end of the conversation, the employer said to her, I hope we settle the case today. I don't know if we will. It's up to my lawyer. I can't get involved in this. But I feel terrible about how stressful this was for you and your baby, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to open an account for your your daughter, and I'm going to put $10,000 into it, and I'm going to do that whether or not we settle the case. And she was just blown away, and they hugged and, you know, had an, and then the case settled easily after that. But it was like how parties can heal, and amazing things can happen, you know, that you would not expect as a neutral uh, presiding over a dispute. Well, you know, it's like most things in life, and we've all seen it, that people want to be respected. They want to be, uh, they don't want to be disrespected in whatever uh, interaction they have. And sometimes just that personal touch makes all the difference in the world. Saying, I'm sorry. And I'm sure, Manny, you've, you've seen that yourself in many mediations. Yeah, you know, I, I was just trying to go through uh, my own thoughts in regards to mediations that uh, stand out. But quite honestly, um, judges' mediation was uh, was. Uh, was very uh, eye-opening because uh, it happens. It just happens, uh, you know, daily uh, all over the country. And so there's no mediation that, in my opinion, is um, uh, more worthy than another because for that individual, that day is the most critical in probably their lifetime. So uh, we try to take it, uh, uh, me and my office and my son, who's my partner, we try to take it uh, as important one mediation at a time. Well, no question about that. And with that, I, I want to say thank you, Lynn, for joining us. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, Lynn, how would they do that? Uh, I'm at JAMS in San Francisco, and all my contact information is on the JAMS website. Terrific. And Manny, if someone wanted to contact you, how would they do that? Well, we could uh, call uh, call up a website at Ringler 
com, which is a national website for all of us, and just click on uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, or Las Vegas, and we'll be right there. Terrific, terrific. And let me tell all of you out there that you can reach any Ringler Associate by going to ringlerassociates.com. It's a very informative website, and on there you can see all the Ringler Associates, as Manny mentioned, all over the country, and choose whichever one that meets your needs. Uh, you can also visit the Ringler Radio Shows on ringlerassociates.com, and you can also find the Ringler Radio Shows on ringlerradio.com, legaltalknetwork.com, or on iTunes, where you can download and listen at your leisure uh, whenever you want. So with that, Lynn, I want to say thank you very much for joining us today. It was You were very informative. I'm glad we had you on the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. Nice talking to both of you. And Manny, once again, great having you back on the show. All right, Larry. Thank you. I Terrific. appreciate it. And for all of you out there, go out and have a great day. Bye-bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. With over a million listeners, Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements. Visit ringlerassociates.com today.